Hey, Bobby, I thought you had a big job interview today. I do, Dean Brazina. I got a huge spot on my tie. I can't go in there like this. Do you realize that's a nationally recognized firm up there? And you're a business scholar to boot. You're not kidding. My teachers have prepared me for this. I've gone to career services. I can't go in there like this. Do you realize that 100% of our business scholars were placed in jobs last year? I do, but I can't go in there with this tie looking like this. Bobby, I'm going to get you ready for this interview. Hey, Marcina, I can't take your tie. That's your favorite tie. You're going to be ready. Yes, you can. <laughs> in this episode of Talking Assets, I had the distinct pleasure of sitting down with one of my accounting heroes, Dean Emeritus Paul Brazina. Paul was my first accounting teacher, and he is one of the main reasons why I decided to become an accounting professor myself. Paul spent 46 years at LaSalle University teaching in the accounting department, and he also served as a dean for a period of time. I sit down with Paul to talk about his philosophy on teaching and his story. How, how did he become an accounting professor at LaSalle University? I've always wanted, to, you know, I, I've told you many times, you were, you know, you were my hero. Um, and I think- I'm oh, what, a, a, what a sad childhood. <laughs> well, it was not until <laughs> not until I got to college. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> um, so I got to college and I saw like, you know, I had your intro to uh, financial accounting class and I like your enthusiasm, like how you loved what you did. And, uh, you know, you, uh, you know, you were just you're a character and I, I loved it. And uh, and so I wanted to be a professor. And it was because of you. So I always wanted to kind of sit down and talk with you about your career and, you know, pick your brain about, um, you know, how you approach teaching, what your philosophy on teaching is. So, you know, maybe we could talk about those two things, your career and then your teaching philosophy. Okay. Sounds good. Good. Okay. You went to Penn State, right? So I went to Penn State. Um, I, I was uh, not a very... Uh, directed student. Uh, I didn't exactly know what I wanted to major in. Uh, I knew it wanted to be business. So like I thought of sciences, I thought of law school, I thought of a whole bunch of different things. But um, the, what really attracted me was going into business. Um, I always viewed business as a big game. And it's a game that basically you can do anything you want. with. So if you want to make money, you can make money. If you want to uh, do good for uh, the community and good for people, you can do that. So I thought there were so many different directions I could go into, like with a business background. So initially, I was going to go into business. And then I bumped into an older fellow who was a friend of my father's, who said, well, why don't you take accounting? Because the accountants really understand business. They're the ones that get deep into the technical aspects of business and uh, you know it's a great foundation so I kind of took his advice and signed up for some accounting courses and found out that I enjoyed them uh, I like I didn't I, I have to admit I didn't like my first accounting course that much but the second one which is you know like a 102 kind of course I really started to enjoy it I really felt that uh uh, I, I could see how it really understood business. I could see how it uh, got into a lot of depth. So uh, I became an accounting major. Uh, I graduated from college when the job market was actually pretty good. 
And okay. um, I wasn't necessarily the hot, best student in the world. I wasn't bad, but I wasn't the best. Uh, but I did have uh, 10 job interviews and I had 10 offers. So wow. <laughs> that's how bad the market was. <laughs> yeah, I was uh, able to get it. And uh, so I did, I took a, a job with uh, what is now PricewaterhouseCoopers. And uh, uh, at graduation, I also knew it was during the Vietnam War and I knew that at some point I really had to, uh, you know, uh, address going into the military in some fashion. So uh, one of the things I always admired as a kid was the U.S. Navy. So I applied to Officer Candidate School uh, right around graduation time and was accepted into the Navy Officer Candidate School. So I started at PricewaterhouseCoopers and then after a few months, uh, entered the uh, Navy uh, wow. and became a, uh, uh, an, a naval officer. And because I had an accounting background, I naturally thought the Navy would put me into the Navy must have a business office. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. I'm, going to, I'm going into the business <laughs> office. I'll do accounting for the yeah, Navy. Budgeting or yeah. Yeah. So the Navy tested me to see what I was good at. And okay. the result was I wound up in the boiler room of the oldest ship in the Navy as a engineering officer. And uh, the ship was in the South China Sea. And so I spent a couple of years uh, below decks in the boiler room, floating around the South China Sea. Wow. Uh, went to some interesting places. We were home ported out of the Philippines, out of Subic Bay. And I did, I got to Thailand, Hong Kong, uh, uh, Vietnam, some other uh, interesting places. Wow. Um, my second tour of duty, I did so well down in the boiler room. My second tour of duty, I went to a guided missile frigate, which is like a big destroyer in the North Atlantic. And it's cold, obviously, in the North Atlantic. So I went from being hot in the boiler room to freezing as the deck operations officer on a guided missile ship. Oh, wow. And what was the name of the ship? It was the uh, uh, Farragut. Uh, DLG-6. I got out of the Navy and decided I wanted to go back and get a master's degree. So immediately I went back for an MBA, also went back to Penn State as a full-time student, and then uh, went went back to uh, PricewaterhouseCoopers. Okay. And uh, after I was there a few years, I was a senior auditor uh, I decided that uh, I wanted to start my own practice and uh, look for ways I could do that. And one way was to teach part-time. So I looked at some different schools, but LaSalle offered me a full-time job, not a part-time job. Oh, wow. So that's how I got into teaching. I got into it almost you know, by accident. So, so what made you, uh, at that point in your life, when you said uh, you were at you just had gotten your master's degree and you're you're back at you're back at Price Waterhouse. And, and so at that point, you're there. What motivated that decision where you, you said, I'm interested in starting my own practice? A couple things. One is I was a little bit older than the average person my age because of the military and grad school. OK, uh, so at that point, I was in my uh, late 20s. Um, and a lot of my friends were attorneys and, uh, they kept saying to me that they w had clients, business clients that needed 
an accountant, a CPA, uh, to do their you know outside accounting service, and they asked me if I was available to to work with them, and I wasn't because when I was with a large multinational firm, I certainly couldn't work with small business. So uh, I kept uh, putting off my friends and saying, I really can't work with your clients. And then at some point I said, wait a minute, this is looking pretty good. <laughs> it's, it's like a nice number of clients and nice little businesses that they're offering me. So at that point, because I was a little bit older, I was used to being in charge, having been an, a naval officer, uh, making yeah. decisions. Um, I thought it might be a good idea to start my own practice, but to sort of uh, support that practice, I thought teaching part-time would be a good idea. Uh, and, and then it turned out to be a full-time uh, teaching position. And, and what about, was did you have good experiences where you were working with people in the Navy, where you, you, um, you thought you had a sense that you might enjoy teaching like why teaching as as a supplementary um, yeah. income there yeah actually i thought i'd be the worst teacher in the world okay because i hated to speak in front of a group of people oh okay yeah it, it literally panicked me to have to get up in front of a group and and talk and now since and you know me so well now i'll get up in front of you know i'll get up in front of the united nations and give a speech now it, do, it doesn't bother me at all but I, I, I kind of faced my worst fears. My worst okay. fears were speaking in front of a group. And uh, at some point I realized at that point in my life, I, I better address it. So my, my first day teaching, it was a very hot day. You know, you can always picture the beginning of September. And I stood up in front of the class and I started to talk. And all of a sudden I started to sweat. And I was sweating so bad that the sweat was pouring over my glasses. Okay. So I had, I had trouble seeing because I was sweating so much. And uh, I told the class, I handed out the syllabus back in those days, as opposed to posting it online, handed out the syllabus, told the class what we were going to do, and then dismissed the class. And I think I held the class for maybe three minutes. It was, a, it was a really short class and uh, I got in my car and I said, I'm quitting. I was just thinking to myself, I'm not going back a second day. This is it. I'm finished. <laughs> and, and then once again, I kind of got my act together and I said, no, I'll go back. And then, you know, I, I became comfortable uh, teaching. In the next segment, Paul talks about how he got into teaching. The other thing I, I found is that when I was a student, I had trouble reading textbooks. So I would read a textbook and literally, and, and you're not gonna believe this, I would read the textbook and fall asleep after like two paragraphs. <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't stay awake, it was so boring to me. I just couldn't stay awake reading accounting. So it took me a lot of time uh, okay. as a student to get through the material because I found it so boring. And then I found the instructors, my, a lot of my college instructors uh, had these convoluted ways to do things. And I would say, it can't be this complicated. It's gotta be easier than that. So what I did is I went through the textbook and the material, and I really tried to put it in a different format. So the students, I didn't present to them exactly what they saw in the textbook. 
Okay. I presented to them a, a condensed version, condensed version, because there was more material in the textbook, condensed version that hopefully would be more understandable. Okay. Uh, and it's because my own struggles in, in really dealing with accounting textbooks and examples. So that was yeah. my job. My job was to take something that was hard to understand and make it understandable to me. And then I figure if I could understand it, my students could probably understand, <laughs> which maybe is a bad assumption. I don't know. And I, I think the one thing I always admired about you as an instructor, when I, when I had you as a student and when I had a chance to observe you um, after I came back to LaSalle, the one thing I always admired was that, um, you know, you kind of made it, you made the student feel like, like you're saying, it's it's no big deal. You know, this right. is it's we're not in some complicated field. You know, it's just accounting, and and if you look at the big picture, this is it's easy, right? Accounting's right. easy. Um, and I also loved how you like you would give a complex topic like leases, and you would, um, you know, you take the real basic, plain vanilla example of leases, and right. that's easy to understand. But then you can layer in little wrinkles well what what changes if this happens and you know if you terminate the lease early what happens then yeah so once you understand the basics then adding one becomes just a little bit easier in the next segment paul talks about his approach to designing a class so how did you like you talked a little bit about like how you broke down you, you got the book for the course and you broke down the material into something that you could understand. Right. How did you go from that to, you know, designing your lecture? Like, how did you build your lecture from from that? Well, I, 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 a couple things. One is I, I've read this in academic articles that when you teach a course, a college course, you're lucky, you're lucky if you get 12 major concepts over to the students. If the students can walk away from a course and they may not list them out, but they really do understand 12 concepts and they understand them well. So I always tried to limit a little bit what I was covering so they were getting those dozen or so major concepts. So I would structure it, first of all, around that. What are the major concepts? The next thing is I knew that students' attention span is about 10 minutes, right? About 10 minutes, they're looking yeah. out the window, they're checking their phones, you know, they're, they're, they're doing something other than the course material. So I would structure my lectures where I would uh, present difficult concepts, right? And try and make them understandable and then take a break for a minute and tell them a story. And, I, you know, people always said, oh, you know, I'm, I'm a storyteller. Yeah, but I'm a storyteller, but every story I told was planned, right? Okay. And most of them, not every, not 100%, but most of them were related to what we were discussing. So I might talk about a client who went to jail because they violated uh, an accounting principle. They, they did something that was really illegal, but the accounting principle is the one that we just discussed. So I'd be talking about a topic and I'd say, oh, by the way, let me tell you about one of my clients. The guy was an absolute crook. And then I would go into what he did. 
and but it was related to what we just talked about. Yeah. So the storytelling uh, relates back to the material because you have to make it alive. If it's just flat facts and flat problems, there's no depth to it. There's no feeling for it, no understanding. And if you go back to all the great teachings in the world, they're all stories. You know, the Bible, the Bible's a story. Right, and, right. And there's sort of a lot of lessons to be learned, but it, but there's stories that are being told. So I, I did believe very strongly in storytelling and tried to make it personal, you know, and uh, the story might be related to something that was in the paper, uh, you know, something that was in the news that day. Okay. So, uh, you know, uh, it, it was storytelling related back to accounting material. And I figured I had to do it about every 10 minutes or so. In the next segment, Paul talks about a time in class when the use of a prop backfired on him. And this is why I love Paul so much. He does crazy things like this. So wait till you hear the story about his prop that backfired. And I remember you bringing in uh, like props to class. Like you brought, you would talk about like, a, you know, a, a company and you brought in the scissor manufacturer, right? You're, and you brought in a pair of scissors. And right. um, yeah, that takes a lot of, a uh, lot of planning and a, little, a lot of uh, thought ahead of time. Yeah, uh, it, it, it's fun to do. Uh, the worst prop I ever had, <laughs> it was, uh, this is, this is horrible because you and I are known for our bow ties. So uh, uh, one time it was, it might have been, it was either Halloween or right before Christmas. I had, uh, I went out and bought an electric bow tie <laughs> that flashed on and off, right? And the bow tie had a wire and okay. the wire went to a battery pack. So <laughs> I put, I was wearing a, a suit jacket. So I put the battery pack in my shirt pocket. Okay. The wire coming up to the tie and the class couldn't tell it was an electric tie. And I'd say, okay, now I'm going to ask you a question. If you get the right answer, I'll give you a surprise. So they answered the question. I pushed the button and the tie lit up. Right? <laughs> so the students thought it was funny. Well, what happened was the battery pack got overheated and burnt through my shirt and like caught fire and it was smoking. And like I'm on fire from my stupid battery pack bow tie. So that was that was the worst prop I ever used. I never used it again. Did it burn your skin or anything? Yeah, yeah. I was burnt. Oh. Yeah, I didn't realize oh. it. I could I smelled something burning. I felt something hot, and then all of a sudden I was like, you know, melting down. I was on fire. Yeah. Did the students have to put the fire out or anything like that? No, or? no. Okay. No. <laughs> wow. I thought when you said you had a. Um, an electric bow tie. I thought it was going to spin. No, no, it just it, it blinked <laughs> off and on. Yeah, it had little lights in it. <laughs> oh, that's a crazy story. Yeah. And it's, so the students must have gotten a kick out of that. Uh, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. I know I didn't get a kick out of it. In the next segment, Paul discusses his approach to assessment. But, uh, <laughs> Yeah, I don't blame you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and um, so, so that would, so that's your lecture. And then, how do you, um, 
like assessment. How did you know what was your approach to assessment, designing exams, designing projects, that type of thing? Uh, what I what I would do is I tried to be, and and this came from a lot of it came from my military training. Uh, my military training said that when as a leader, it's important to be consistent. So you have to give honest feedback, right? You don't want to uh, just automatically give people high grades. Uh, you have to give honest feedback about what, how they're doing and what they're learning. And then you have to be consistent. So if, if you know, if a, uh, let's say a 92 is an A and a student has a 91.4, it's not an A. Mm. You know, it's A minus or however you're, you're doing it. So, and they'll say, yeah, but it was only, you know, six tenths of a point, you know, or even less than that, it's, you know, two tenths of a point uh, from getting an A, it's not fair. Again, no, right. it's fair. That's the way it is. So I would try to be very consistent. Once I sent, set, sort of told them what the standards were, then it's up to them to work towards those standards. In the next segment, Paul shares his thoughts about online education. It, it doesn't seem like online education is uh, going away, right? And so I, I think we're going to continue to see courses online. What are your feelings on online education and, you know, what works and what doesn't work? Um, well, I, I think interesting classes are still an important part of online teaching and, you know, help with the learning aspects of it. Uh, the real challenge is to make the material relevant to what the students' careers want to be like what they want to do in the future uh-huh. and uh, give them tools that they can they can use you know in the workplace um, it's very hard today um, to to go into um, business because there's a lot of technical aspects of it that you have to understand so there's technology and then there is the subject matter and the biggest the biggest problem I see is that uh, people may rely too heavily on technology in the future. So you don't want technology to replace thinking. You know, we, we yeah. used to use the term critical thinking. Um, you know, my experience has been uh, working in business that I've many times come across um, flaws in software programs where the, the best and the brightest do the programming, and then the practitioners adopt the programming and assume it's right, uh-huh. and the technology is wrong, the software is wrong. So, you know, related back to online teaching and online learning, I think you've really got to uh, have good examples of what some of the flaws are of relying on technology. Okay. And, you know, have the students be aware of that and then have to critically think. So I think a lot of the testing, as opposed to just rote testing, you know, for multiple choice questions online, really have to be more analytical skills. How mm-hmm. do they analyze information and make it like a very personal basis where they, they really need to think hard about the material that they're receiving. And then the instructors can't get lazy. And then, yeah. then just automatically start using um, 
software developed programs to test students that really don't require a lot of thinking. It, mm -hmm. it, it requires some memorization, but not really careful analysis because you're submitting the material electronically. It's being graded electronically. The results yeah. come out electronically. And it's not the way uh, executives work. Executives think. Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, you can't. So the, the danger of online teaching and online learning is that it becomes too mechanical. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, and if you try to like get in this mindset of like, how do we scale this to get, you know, so many students and go with a, you know, a volume strategy. Um, I, I don't, it really affects learning. You know, it becomes like um, students just, you know, they're checking the box. I completed this course so that I can get this degree and they're not actually taking away anything away from the course. There, there's a big part of the workforce you know, the sort of the marketplace for college graduates they, they go out into, that it's really, they're looking for a commodity. They're looking for someone with a piece of paper saying they have a degree. So they have a bachelor's degree, they have a master's degree, their pay scale is based on the degree that they have. Uh, that's sort of the, the part of the workforce that uh, is not the creative part of the workforce. It's, it's sort of the commodity level of workforce. The, the real upper level people need to think and they need to learn in a way that they challenge, they question, they analyze, uh, they uh, give their results, their opinions, and they get very personalized feedback on what they're doing. Mm. And if online learning becomes too mechanical, uh, too based on software routines. Uh, I, I, I think uh, education uh, loses all of its value. Yeah, yeah, it, it's, um, I, I, to take a different perspective, I, I think there's a, a huge opportunity uh, to do it well. And, and I think, I think at LaSalle, um, and I, I think, you know, we're, we're kind of like a hidden gem um, here at LaSalle, our, our program really provides that that critical thinking type of education. In this final segment, Paul discusses what he thinks is distinct about a LaSalle student and what is distinct about the community at LaSalle University. You know, you, you were at LaSalle for, was it 46 years? 46 years, yeah. 46 years, which is incredible. Um, in, in your time at LaSalle, like, what do you think stands out as being unique? What, what is unique to the community here at LaSalle or this, the type of student that we get here at LaSalle? What, what makes LaSalle such a special place? I think it starts back in, in many cases, the families that send their kids to LaSalle. I think the families value higher education. Um, it's also based on the fact that we have a lot of first-generation college students, a place where students re realize there's an opportunity that they can start to achieve some of the dreams that they have and maybe some of the dreams of their community and their families have for them. So I think LaSalle is somewhat unique in, in that regard, uh, that we get these really wonderful students 
that uh, are really striving to improve uh, themselves and improve their lives and improve the lives of people around them. Uh, now, you know, that's not 100% of our students. I mean, there, there's, you know, a good mix of students at LaSalle, but I think that some of those students, those very hungry first-generation students uh, actually motivate the other students because uh, the other students say, wait a minute, they're doing their homework. They're getting the A's in the course. What am I doing wrong? <laughs> you know, right. there's only so many parties I can go to on a weekend. <laughs> I think I'm, I'm going in the wrong direction. So I think that some of our students that are really highly motivated coming into LaSalle uh, learn, you know, uh, they, they, what they have is picked up by some of the other students. I always found students at LaSalle had a better work ethic. We always talk about that, that they realize uh, the world doesn't run for them, that mm -hmm. they've got to be, you know, a, an active participant and do their, you know, do their job. And I always appreciated that. I always liked that. Yeah. It's, there's something, uh, you know, like that grit, that kind of underdog mentality, you know, it's, it's, it's likable, you know, you just, you, you like seeing students, uh, you know, I get so excited when my students are really working for something and they, you know, they get that internship or, you know, they, um, you know, whatever it is, if, when they're excited, it, it makes, that's one of the best parts of my job, I think, is seeing them do well. And you know what else is really interesting at LaSalle? Uh, I would meet a class, you know, like the first day or two. And I'd look over the students. I mean, I'm standing in the front of the class, so I can see all of them pretty easily. They, they can't see the rest of the class that well. But I would, I'd look at them and I'd, I'd always think to myself, and I'd say, you know, and sometimes I would tell them this, that, you know, they have so many insecurities while they're in college. Am I going to be successful? Am I going to graduate? Uh, am I going to get a job? Uh, will I ever make enough money to ever buy a, a car or a decent home? You know, all these unknowns. And I don't feel that way. When I look at the class, I see successful people. I see people that are at the top of their profession, you know, in the future. Because the reason I know that, and I can guarantee it, is that I was doing it for 46 years. And I could see students that I had 30 years ago who are now leading major companies, mm -hmm. you know, and yeah. developing new businesses and you know, just being leaders, leading in the community in charge of major nonprofits. I know they're going to be successful. So it's my job to kind of lead them to that success. Yeah. You know, because I know they can do it. Yeah, that, that's what you did for all those years. Yeah. Uh, that's so, incredible. It's fun, it's fun doing that because you look at them and they look like, you know, they're, they're nervous, they're uncertain, uh, they don't know what's going to happen in the future. I do know what's going to happen in the future. And uh -huh. the reason I know it is I've seen it over and over and over again, all the success that comes out of LaSalle classrooms. I'd like to thank... Paul Brzezina for joining us on this podcast and sharing so many wonderful insights about his career and his approach to teaching. Take care. Hi, LaSalle students. This is Paul Brzezina from the accounting department. Well, 
I'm converting my, my guitar studio into a broadcast studio for my accounting courses. So I look forward to seeing you next week. Uh, until then, stay safe.